Georgia Georgia The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind The phrase better late than never is one that uh, you've no doubt heard, dear listener. It's one that we've referred to on many occasions as we finally got around to doing something that we probably should have gotten to a little sooner. And man, did I come across a prime example this past weekend. The news came in a few days ago that America's 39th president and oldest living president at age 98, Jimmy Carter, has now entered hospice care. Evidently, he plans to stay at home and not go to the hospital and stay comfortable and do what's necessary at the end of life. Hospice has traditionally been thought of as um, care you receive in the last, say, six months or even less of your life. And it's directed at keeping you in an environment you like as comfortable as possible. Now, knowing Jimmy Carter's history, I wouldn't be surprised if six months from now, he is still with us. Four years ago, in 2019, Jimmy Carter, it was announced, had terminal cancer. It had spread to his brain and to his liver, originating as a melanoma. The prognosis was not good, but... Former President Carter underwent some experimental new treatments directed at taking the cancer out, and boy, did it work. His cancer was reportedly eliminated, making him eligible to live out a normal lifespan. Now, when you start at age 95, that uh, works out to only a few years. But, you know, if I was 95 and I had the chance for a few more years, I'm pretty sure I'd take it. Well, there's no doubt. Thinking about it, I'm, I'm genuinely... Um, I'm genuinely sorry that Radio Parallax never made an effort to uh, to interview former President Carter. I, I'm I'm fairly sure that if we'd made an effort to do so, we might have succeeded. But I didn't try. The reason I didn't try was I just didn't know where to go with Jimmy Carter. Yes, Mr. Millen, I could have started with Brother Billy. And since you mentioned him, I think I'll have to dig up a quote from Billy Carter. When uh, Billy's brother Jimmy was <laughs> running for president... Back in 1976, he was asked by a reporter if he wasn't a little bit strange, to which Billy replied, look, my mama was a 70-year-old Peace Corps volunteer in India. One of my sisters goes all over the world as a holy roller preacher. My oldest sister spends half her time on a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, and my brother thinks he's going to be president of the United States. Which one of our family do you think is normal? And, of course, there's quotes about Billy. Apparently, uh, their mother, Miss Lillian, was asked on the night that Carter won the presidency if she was proud of her boy. Her response was, which one? And, uh, yeah, these quotes come from Jimmy Carter's book, An Hour Before Daylight, Memories of a Rural Boyhood. My mother suggested to me that I might want to read this book. She recommended it very highly. My mom had good judgment in such things, and so I vowed that I would sit down and read it. But you know what? The book sat there for the last 20 years unread. I did tell myself as I looked at the book over the years, I do need to read this while Jimmy Carter is still alive. So when the news came down that the former president was now entering hospice care, I thought, now's the time. So on Saturday, I sat down and read an hour before daylight, and mom was right. It's very good. The New Yorker called it an American classic. I think they're right. It really has me kicking myself after completing my reading, was that 
There was so much in this book that I would have loved to have spoken with Jimmy Carter about, because it turns out he and I have a lot more in common than I had any idea. After his dad died, Jimmy Carter gave up his career in the Navy to go back and run the family farm. Of course, he did afterwards dabble in a bit of politics. But in the end, he wound up back in his boyhood town, where I presume he is today. By odd coincidence, I find myself living currently in my boyhood town. Jimmy grew up on farms and orchards. So did I. Although rather tragically, according to Jimmy Carter himself, if you go back to his hometown, it looks pretty much the way it did a century earlier. I certainly can't say the same thing. But I gotta tell you, I am kicking myself. In page after page, I found quotes that I just would love to have discussed with the former president. Such as the fact that he was a huge fan of running around barefoot. He said he thought that it made him more connected to the land. Well, and as a kid, I used to love running around barefoot, and I think he's absolutely right. I know what he means. Now, Mr. Carter was a few years older than my own father, who passed 20 years ago. So my dad's experiences growing up would have probably been a little more synced in with Jimmy Carter. But I must say, when I came along a couple decades later in a rural environment, things were still carrying on in the old ways to a large degree. Now, the Bay Area in the 1950s and 60s was certainly a lot more affluent than rural Georgia was in the 20s and 30s. But in the land around us, farming still went on, harvests were still gathered in, orchards were tended to. I learned to drive on a jalopy, a now archaic word, which in this case referred to a 1928 flatbed Model A. And when the lights went out, as they sometimes did, although not very commonly, but sometimes, out came the kerosene lanterns. They were still around from the 1920s, and I'm proud to report that I still have a couple of them. What really struck me as a a synchrony between myself and Jimmy Carter was the fact that he describes how in front of their shop on the farm there was a large Sears Roebuck grinding stone. They would sit on a wooden seat and the pedal to keep the disc spinning. He described as the bottom of the stone running in half an automobile tire filled with water. Well, I have a similar apparatus. The stone does not enter water. But I got to tell you, I still use it to sharpen machetes, knives, pruning shears, etc. This thing was ancient when I was a small boy, but it still works. I just don't have the heart to give it up. It still functions. I don't think I could properly relate to to poor white Southerners until I read this book. Carter notes in the book, though he fondly remembers his childhood, he thinks he was perhaps romanticizing the life on a farm because it ain't an easy life. And the prices you get for your produce are not always high. I'd seen this myself firsthand, but I really had to, had to feel for Carter when he describes how when he left his home in 1941 to go to college, the absence of mechanized power, the almost total dependence on manual labor, and the basic agricultural techniques employed were relatively unchanged since colonial times. Said Carter, one commentator said that Jesus... And even Moses would have felt at home on a farm in the Deep South during the first third of the 20th century. Anyway, it turns out there's quite a bit that I could have spoken to the former president about, and I'm sorry that I'm not going to do so. Reaching out to him is something I don't intend to apply the principle of better late than never to. Well, Mr. Millen, you you do have a point. He might be sitting around bored. Gosh, maybe I should make a discreet inquiry. Stay tuned. I do confess to being genuinely jealous. The fact that Jimmy Carter 
spent many years in retirement managing the farm. Still, the land they own is productive, although I'm pretty sure what he retained was a, a fraction of what the family once owned. Still, I contrast this to where I grew up. Looking out my window right now, what used to be apricot trees is uh, houses. Now, in California, there's sort of a great, uh, I don't know, it's almost a pyramid scheme, real estate in the state. It's a desirable place to live. The weather's good. The scenery's terrific. There's a lot to do living where we live. And lots of money is coming in as uh, Silicon Valley expands to fill up the South Bay area and San Francisco. It has caused a great perversion, I would say, of land use. A sane society would keep some portions of the land open to grow food. This used to be the case where I live. Not two-tenths of a mile away, there used to be a family farm. It lasted up till a few years ago. If you wanted some fresh corn or tomatoes, you went right over and bought it at the fruit stand. Now, economists would point out you can make a lot more money turning it into luxury condos. And wouldn't you know it, that's what they did. But growing your food in Fresno and shipping it uh, over the highways and on the railroads to get it to the Bay Area seems, well, kind of eco-unfriendly. But the truth is our laws are not written so that we live in a totally sane society. It would be sane to have people living close to where the food is grown. But it doesn't work out that way due to zoning laws. And yes, we're going to have something to say about that in some future programs. Because an evil alliance of the real estate industry and big tech have conspired by the use of well-meaning liberal activists to reach out and change zoning laws across the state of California. What they seek is even more high-density housing. Because in the thinking of these people, everything is better when you have more folks living where you live. My suspicion is that most of them have not visited, say, Bangladesh or India to conclude that more folks living in the environment isn't necessarily the best of all possible worlds. We ain't going to go into that today. Sitting in front of me is a, a, a communique from a, a, a local pal who is in the real estate business. And boy, is he proud of these prices. The fact that these prices are in the stratosphere has him all a-smiling in his little photo at the bottom of the, uh, <laughs> of the letter. He does note that median sale prices have actually dropped. Yes, actually gone down a little bit. But he notes the decrease has been considerably lower than last summer because, boy, you'd hate to see prices come down where people could actually afford to live here. Anyway, my friend Todd Urick, who uh, has, has been a friend of this program, airing it, KDVS as it does. Todd posted some opinions on how it is the Bay Area needs to have way more people and way more housing. And all I can say is I wish you could see what I've seen over the past few decades. I think it would modify his opinion a little bit. But you know what? We're not going to get into that today. Yes, I realize there is a guiding principle of life that what we seek is the greatest good for the greatest number of people. But you know, it's one thing to have three or four people in jacuzzi and being enjoying yourself. And then look up to see 12 drunken revelers peeling their clothes off, about to join you. It is possible to exceed the carrying capacity of a place and render things less well-off. There seems to be some mythology built up around the single-family home, that the fact that so many of these were built is why there's all this problem. To my mind, the problem comes from the demand side more than the supply side. 
And when you pay people these princely sums of like $150,000 as a starting programmer in some of these companies, and you've got, you know, husband and wife pulling in $300,000 a year, well, they can afford a lot of house. Anyway, it's a damn complicated subject and doesn't lend itself well to a brief discussion on the radio. So again, defer a uh, more comprehensive evaluation for another day. Here's what we'll do instead. We spoke uh, at length in our first segment today about the situation in Ukraine involving Vladimir Putin. Russ Baker's always a great guy to talk to. And so is our good friend Greg Palast, who also weighed in on this subject in the past few days. So just as on some future show, we'll do a more comprehensive look at the great circus of real estate in California, we'll make today's show a more comprehensive look at Ukraine and Putin. We'd like to have Greg come back and and talk to us about this, but we can postpone that and at this point just, I think, read extensively from what he had to say, which is, like Russ Baker, quite persuasive. To quote from Greg Palace's article for BuzzFlash titled, Putin's Mein Kampf, an Invasion Foretold. As Russian tanks rolled across the border, some of our fellow progressives called it a justified attack in response to a threat from Western military imperialists. The year was 1939. That year, some on the left, a minority for sure, bent themselves into moral pretzels to justify the Hitler-Stalin pact and the Russian-German murder-drenched conquest of Poland. Notes Palace, today there is nauseating, horrifying humor watching one-time fighters against injustice, self-proclaimed anti-war activists dancing cheek-to-cheek with Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ted Cruz, Tucker Carlson, and fascist pinup Silvio Berlusconi sharing their love, or at least their sad excuse-making for Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. At its core, these strange bedfellows' sympathy for the Russian invasion rests ultimately on the canard that it was NATO's expansion that provoked Putin. Pay attention to Putin's own words. On June 12, 2021, months before his tanks rolled, Putin issued a detailed statement of his casus belli, his justification for the total seizure of Ukraine, not just the Donbass, in the 21-page-long essay. Quote, on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, unquote. No one should speak of this war until they read this Mein Kampf. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere in his essay does Putin say one word about NATO expansion. His meandering screed boils down to two points. First, Ukraine has always been an inseparable part of Ruski Mir, the soul and body of Mother Russia, for more than a thousand years. But, says Palast, it's not true. Putin's phantasmic claims reaches back to the 10th century, to Volodymyr, Grand Prince of the Kievan Rus Principality, founded not by the Slavs they conquered, but as an extension of the Viking Empire. The rulers of Ukraine and this proto-Russia were Swedish. Volodymyr, namesake for both Zelensky and Putin, ruled from the metropolitan capital of Kiev over a vast land including the swampy little village of Moscow. Volodymyr, in 988 AD, converted to Christianity. Thus was founded the Orthodox Church based in Kiev, not in Russia, that did not exist. Nevertheless, here is the germ of Putin's second causes belli, reason for invasion, religion, specifically restoration of the one and true Orthodox Church. The crown, to which Putin bows, is the Moscow-based Patriarch of Kirill, the ultimate source of Putin's political powers and Putin's hold on rural believers. It was Kirill who taunted and demanded Putin save the Muscovite faithful in the Donbass, who sided with Kirill in the Orthodox Schism. 
He blesses what he sees as a crusade to restore the rightful church and cast out the heretics, the Ukraine and Greek patriarchs. Yes, apparently a couple of years ago, the Orthodox in Ukraine, which did evidently look to Moscow for their leadership, switched to recognizing the Greek patriarchs as their true leaders. This is not set well in Russia. Notes Palast. Putin's tale of the unbroken, Christ-blessed rule of Ukraine by Russia has a problem. It's bull. The Kievan Russian Empire shredded and disappeared in in the pinwheel of history nearly a millennium ago in 1242. For most of the vast expanses of centuries between, Ukraine was an independent and voluntary member of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It is a great shame that this huge empire, often called the Golden Freedom, has little mention in the history books because its member states ruled in peace by consensus, a proto-democracy that elected its leaders, and whose constitution demanded only peaceful coexistence among its states and religious freedom. Notes Palace. In Putin's essay, his bloviating fury is aimed not at NATO, but at the Bolsheviks, those commie traitors who from day one of the 1917 revolution recognized Ukraine as an independent nation. Says Palace, in 1942, Ukraine won its own seat at the UN based on Soviet insistence that Ukraine is a sovereign state. I have to stop Greg Palace right there and say, well, yeah, because Stalin cut a deal with Roosevelt that said, yeah, I'll join the UN, but I get three votes. The USSR gets one, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic gets two, and the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic becomes number three. So, Greg, I don't think it was the recognition of uh, Ukrainian sovereignty that was behind that one. Nevertheless, he goes on. Now to Putin's causes belly number two, the existential threat to Russia from the West. The West, says Putin, will not rest until Russia is destroyed. The threat is not from NATO's cruise missiles, but from NATO's homosexuals. Like the Ayatollahs of Iran, to Putin and Kirill, the poison of culture, moral decay, reaches its zenith and the vile desecration of the nuclear family and all the intellectual free-thinking freakery and vices that come with it. The men are threatened by heretical free-thinking that leads from liberty to libertinism. And like the prior restorers of the faith, grand inquisitors and the armed wing, the crusaders, there can be no vote, no newspaper chit-chat when the word of God is defied and threatened. The post-Gorbachev orgies are over. Pussy riot must be jailed. This is why Putin is the pinup for the Christian fascist parties of the West, from Golden Dawn in Greece, Marie Le Pen in France, to the Proud Boys and U.S. Christian fascists, including Holocaust denier, January 6th suspect, and Trump dinner guest, Nick Fuentes. Putin accuses the West of poisoning Russia with a monstrosity, that a boy could become a girl, and reversely, that they could pay five and six gender roles. Read carefully Putin's declaration of the invasion of Ukraine and his true cause. He declared, The West sought to destroy our traditional values and force on us their false values that would erode us, our people from within. The attitudes that they've been aggressively imposing on their countries, attitudes that are directly leading to degradation and degeneration because they are contrary to human nature. Said Palace Putin and his grand ceremony annexing Ukraine provinces linked it directly to his war on Western-inspired transgender rights, which he termed pure Satanism. Anyway, skipping ahead, said Palace, let me quickly dispose of the remnants of the canard that NATO expansion threatened Russia's very existence 
that Putin's cause is justified. Yes, Ukraine sought to enter NATO. That was two decades ago, and NATO turned them down. He asks in the end, how can too many of my fellow progressives who marched against Bush's preemptive war in Iraq now find preemptive war by Putin justified by, quote, NATO provocation, unquote. Thankfully, Putin has few such useful idiots. In 1939, after the Munich Peace Accord, when the Germans and Russians invaded Poland, they hunted down those who supplied weapons to the Polish army. They found my great-uncle Soli, who supplied horses to the Polish cavalry, horses that fought the Panzer tanks. You know how that ended. The Nazis gathered the locals and shot Uncle Soli in the head. Some cheered. He was, after all, like Zelensky, a Jew. At the Dachau concentration camp is a plaque that says simply, Never again. And today, it seems, some of my once comrades have added an asterisk. Well, maybe sometimes. Strong words, and I would dispute none of them. Well, except for Ukraine and the UN, but that's a, that's a minor thing. Since we're talking about crazy, complicated political crap, and we are, let's look into the fact that a judge, a federal judge in New York last week, rejected the efforts by relatives of the victims of the September 11th attacks to seize... billion in frozen Afghan central bank funds. That's to pay off judgment debts owed by the Taliban. Unfortunately for these families, in a 30-page opinion, Judge George Daniels of the Southern District of New York ruled that federal courts lacked legal jurisdiction to seize the funds. He also said that awarding them to the families would be unconstitutional because it would mean effectively recognizing the militants as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. So... Wait, the U.S. is not recognizing the Taliban as legitimate government of Afghanistan? Meanwhile, the Taliban is demanding that the U.S. return the $3.5 billion in assets after that court ruling. A deputy government spokesman told the press, These assets belong to Afghanistan. There should be no excuse to freeze or not return them to the people of Afghanistan. They must be returned without any terms and conditions. I wasn't paying attention, but apparently last February, February 22, Joe Biden uh, revealed a plan to split that cash with half directed to the Afghans and half going to the families of the victims. Well, we see where that's going. It's going right into a court Mexican standoff, or in this case, an Afghan standoff. Here's my big question. How, how is it that Afghan assets have been seized in the wake of the 9-11 attacks? 15 of the 19 hijackers that day were Saudis. The attack was bankrolled by Osama bin Laden and multiple other Saudi princes. It was masterminded by Khalil Sheikh Mohammed, a Saudi. And yet there appears to be no mention or any actual factual evidence that Saudi bank accounts were ever seized. No, instead they decided to pick on the Afghan government, which, you know, the Taliban did offer safe harbor to uh, Osama bin Laden. Although we would refer you back to an interview we did many, many years ago with, oddly enough, a CIA agent named Gary Birdson, who wrote a book called Jawbreaker about how it was he and numerous other operatives had Osama bin Laden surrounded at Tora Bora in Afghanistan only to see the powers that be allow him to slip away on a donkey into Pakistan. Yes, Osama was allowed to slip away. And as far as we can tell, none of his bank accounts were seized. (laughs) No family members uh, from the 9-11 attacks could ever expect to see a Saudi dime. 
What is wrong with this picture besides everything? On a happier note, I want to compliment the forecasters of the weather in this country who predicted there'd be a coast-to-coast bitter winter storm with snowfall down to about the 1,700-foot level in the Bay Area. And by God, that's what we got. The Bay Area doesn't get snow all that often, so when it was predicted, I thought, well, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, I saw it, and I believe it. Oh, and we do want to note, dear listener, that weather permitting, and there's a lot of storms coming through, so it may not be permitting, but weather permitting, please go out after sunset and look to the west. That's the direction the sun just went down in. You will see a spectacular alignment of Venus and Jupiter in the western sky. And if you find the ever-growing moon, you will notice that it's somewhere near the planet Mars, which itself is located between two other red objects in the sky, the star Aldebaran and the star Betelgeuse. And we will close out today's program with a discussion of Flacco. Flacco is a Eurasian eagle owl, which doesn't make him part eagle, part owl. He's, he's all owl. That's just the name for that type of owl. He escaped from New York Central Zoo a couple of weeks ago, and he's been hanging out in Central Park. Being a creature used to living in a zoo, it was felt that Flacco wouldn't know what to do out in the wild and would probably starve. But... Observers subsequently reported that Flacco was then clumping little balls of fur and bones indicating that he was feasting on the rats, which famously inhabit New York's Central Park. As a result, zoo officials have announced they're suspending recovery operations for Flacco, at least for now, but they will try to keep an eye on his health. And uh, the reporting on this does note that the Eurasian eagle owl is one of the larger owl species with a wingspan of up to 79 inches. That's according to the Wildlife Conservation Society. They have large talons and distinctive ear tufts, which does separate them from other birds of prey, including Marjorie Taylor Greene. And speaking of Congressman Greene, we would note in closing that while House Speaker Kevin McCarthy may not have any political principles, according to The Atlantic, The man does pay his debts. To reward their support for his successful speakership bid, McCarthy has handed out plum committee assignments to the most extreme and weirdest members of the GOP Clown Caucus. The aforementioned Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of the Jewish Space Lasers fame is headed to the Oversight Committee to tackle the urgent work of trying to tie President Biden to his son Hunter's infamous laptop. Anyway, if Marjorie can succeed in this, maybe she can earn a spot as Donald Trump's vice president in 2024. Now, picking a lady who's a whack job didn't pan out so well for John McCain back in 2008, but we'll have to see what Trump does. But we would like to note in closing that back in 2012, Sarah Palin, the former vice presidential candidate under McCain, was touring historic sites in Boston when she mentioned that on Paul Revere's famous ride in 1775, he was, quote, ringing those bells, unquote. Now, it turns out Paul Revere did not, in fact, ring any bells, And after the press mocked her, she decided to stand by her version of events. And one of her supporters edited the Wikipedia entry on Paul Revere to reflect Palin's version of events. Wikipedia fixed the article and locked out any such further changes. At which point Stephen Colbert tried to help Palin by asking his viewers to change the entry on Bells to include Palin's account of Paul Revere's ride. We don't know how that turned out. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. 
Our thanks to Russ Baker, who always does good work. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week. Oh,